other 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, welcome back to season two. I know, Cass. Can you believe that it has been one year since we launched? That's crazy. I cannot, April. Time flies when you are having fun. It has been such a journey for both of us, dress listeners, and we are so excited to be back for another season to share with you our love of all things fashion history. And this is very exciting. With this season two launch comes a big announcement. Um, Now you're going to get not one, but two episodes of Dressed each and every week. That's right. We are now bringing you a weekly double dose of Dressed thanks to our new Thursday Minnesota edition, Fashion History Mystery, where April and I address questions posed by, well, you. Yeah. So like, is there a question that you had pertaining to a particular topic featured on an episode or maybe just a general fashion history question that you've pondered but never knew the answer to? We would love to hear from you, so please direct message us on Instagram or write to us at our new email address, dressed at iheartmedia.com. And being that it is the start of Fashion Week here in NYC, we can think of no better way to launch season two than with the man who once said, quote, deep in every heart slumbers a dream and the couturier knows it. Every woman is a princess. Yes, and Christian Dior was the dream maker. When he opened his couture house in 1947, it was in the wake of the devastation brought by World War II. And he reminded women what it was to revel in the luxury of their femininity once again, creating highly structured silhouettes comprised of yards of fabric that harkened back to the luxury of the Belle Epoque. Quote, We were emerging from the period of war of uniforms of women soldiers built like boxers. I drew women flowers, soft shoulders, fine waists like Liana, and wide skirts like Corolla. Dior's flower women transformed fashion in the post-World War II era and provided the basis for many of the styles we most associate with the 1950s today. Okay, you mean like the ones that are currently seen on the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel series? Yes. (laughs) I'm going to fangirl out here for a minute because I'm I'm totally obsessed. Donna Zakowska and her team do such a great job with the costuming of this show. You know, despite the fact that I was insanely busy, I binge watched season two in the span of a week. Me too. (laughs) A fun fact, I happen to know that the costume designers do indeed look at the work of haute couturiers like Dior when they are designing for the lead character, Midge, which makes perfect sense because Dior is arguably one of the most famous names in the entire history of fashion. Yeah, and to this day, his name and the brand that carries it are synonymous with luxury and glamour. And yet Dior's own career spanned but a brief 10 years His legacy carried on in the wake of his untimely death by six different designers, the work of which are all on display alongside that of the master in the Denver Art Museum's current retrospective, Dior, From Paris to the World. And in December, I was so lucky. um, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend the exhibit. And suffice it to say, April, 
While I thought I knew a lot about Christian Dior, it turns out that my knowledge really barely skimmed the surface. I was fortunate enough to be guided through the exhibit by Florence Muller, and she's the exhibition's curator and the world's foremost Dior expert. So she is the woman behind over 15 Dior exhibitions around the world and has written numerous books about him. And this exhibition is really as much a testament to her years of scholarship and dedication to preserving his legacy as it is to the man himself. Since the 1980s, Florence has curated and contributed to more than 100 exhibitions worldwide. And she recently joined the Denver Art Museum in 2015 as the Avenir Foundation Curator of Textile Art and Fashion. And we are thrilled to have her with us today to inaugurate Season 2 of Dressed. Welcome, Florence. Welcome to the show, Florence. Hello. (laughs) Before we dive into Dior, I am hoping you can share with our listeners a little bit about your background and what brought you to fashion history and Dior. Yes. um, First of all, I I studied the history of art uh, in uh, Paris at the School of Louvre and at the Institute of Art and Archaeology. And then uh, I became really involved uh, with fashion and uh, fashion design. And I, I really started to follow all the fashion shows uh, in Paris. And then I met the founder of the Fashion Museum in the Decorative Art Museum in Paris, in the Louvre. And I became her assistant. And then uh, after she died, I, I, I was in charge of the, 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 this fashion museum inside uh, the Louvre. And I stayed during many years. And then I became an independent curator and I wrote many books. I, I was also a journalist. Um, I did many, many things. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Over the years, you have written numerous books and curated a number of exhibitions on Dior around the world. And that includes last year's Christian Dior Designer of Dreams at Les Arts Decoratifs Museum in Paris. And that exhibition marked 70 years since the founding of the House of Dior in 1947. It included over 300 pieces that spanned the house's 70-year run. So in many ways, that exhibit provided the foundation for your current exhibition, Dior from Paris to the World, but in many ways, they are very different. So why was this important to you? The two exhibitions are uh, very uh, different. And in fact, the the one that I have uh, built for Denver is based on many, many years uh, when I did did 15 exhibitions on Dior around the world and many of them in the Christian Dior Museum in Granville. And especially the exhibition that I did in Granville in Normandy uh, were really like uh, experimentation to explore the whole history of Dior and then to have a very clear idea that uh, w- w- what is the, the sources of, of the history and what belongs to museums and especially the Christian Dior Couture House. For Denver, I envision a new point of view, which is uh, from Paris to the world, uh, how uh, Christian Dior envisioned the expansion of his house around the world. He was was really the pioneer of this way of making uh, fashion like a globalization, like something which is happening around the world. Fabulous. And we will talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the interview. But first, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what goes into planning an exhibition of this size. So how did you pick the pieces to be included in the exhibit? 
And why was it important to you to show pieces that have never before been exhibited? The planning process of an exhibition like this is, is very long, very difficult. Uh, I think I started to work on it uh, two years ago. Um, first of all, I did a tour of um, costume museums, especially in the U.S., because I wanted to have um, many loans from the um, American museums. And I really uh, went to storages and met Uh, curators and uh, I was looking at things that were never exhibited before and I did the same thing in the archives of the Christian Dior Couture House which was one of the most uh, important private uh, collection in the world and I really uh, went through thousands of dresses and documents and accessories that you know I, I saw these things precisely I, I I was looking at this thing I was not just looking at them on pictures I really spent a, a long time in storages envisioning how you can display these things if they are uh, enough in a good condition to be exhibited there, there are many many criteriums to to uh, build uh, the list of an exhibition like this Absolutely. And what an incredible exhibition. It spans over seven decades, but we are going to start at the beginning. Who was Christian Dior? Uh, Christian Dior was um, not supposed to become a couturier because he was born in a wealthy family and uh, his father wanted for him um, another, you know, another job. And, uh, and he did uh, political science uh, studies, but then he became um, an art gallerist. And he was running two art galleries when he was in his 20s. Very um, interesting um, uh, job as a director of these galleries where he was showing uh, up-and-coming artists such as um, uh, Salvador Dali or uh, Giacometti or Calder. And later on, uh, through different circumstances, he had to uh, find a better way of making a living because the family lost uh, their fortune during the uh, economic crisis. Then he, he discovered the fashion world through fashion illustration. And then he was able to uh, build his own uh, couture house with the help of the richest man in France, um, Marcel Boussac, who was at the head of a textile uh, group. And, and then, yes, he became this couturier, very famous in the world, with his first collection. And I think it was very difficult for him because he was a very shy person, very modest, you know. And he, he didn't like to be uh, under the spotlight. He, it was really, and he had to, to play as this very famous star couturier while he was absolutely the opposite. <laughs> Yeah, and he rose to almost instant worldwide fame with his first collection in 1947, so much so that he was heralded as a hero of the post-war period. So significant were his contributions to women's fashion in the wake of World War II. And his very first collection presented so drastic a change, in fact, to what women wore during the war that it inspired Harper's Bazaar editor Carmel Snow to dub it the quote-unquote new look. So what exactly was the new look and why was it so groundbreaking? 
The new look was exactly the opposite of the style that was worn during the Second World War. Um, the, during the war, the style was about uh, silhouettes, very uh, angular, very masculine, almost mimicking um, a military uniform. And Christian Dior wanted really to design a new vision, uh, the, really a vision um, linked with a new world that had to be rebuilt, you know, the, the world after the Second World War. And his new silhouette is based on femininity, on a vision of something very charming, very romantic, with long skirts, um, a, a bust that shows the curves of the feminine body, the breast, the, the thin waist, the hips. It's based on really a, an undulation, you know, a line which is undulating and which is for him the, 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 the beautiful way of expressing femininity. Right, and he used so, yards and yards of fabric where during World War II, um, you know, rations would have prevented women from, from using that much fabric to um, express their fashion. So it really was incredibly different from what they were wearing during the war and so luxurious and feminine. Yes, it, it was really the symbol of the re return to luxury, uh, to uh, something uh, linked with the history of France, you know, and the, the moment when France was proud of, of her lifestyle, of, uh, you know, Versailles, the 18th century, the 19th century, this vision of a very elevated uh, form of culture. And he wanted to, to go back to this and, and really to send this message of let's go back to prosperity, even though prosperity was not a reality, but he was he was really bringing the the symbol of luxury uh, in the fashion world. And women were ready. <laughs> yes, they wanted. Everybody wanted to forget, you know, all these. Uh, awful uh, souvenirs about the, the Second World War. Everybody wanted to, to go into a beautiful future. Right. And of course, the most iconic garment from this first collection was the bar suit. And it really encompassed all the characteristics of this new look with the cinched waist and this impeccably tailored jacket, padded hips and these wide skirts. And it is the first thing you see when you walk into the exhibit. And it is absolutely, it stopped me in my tracks, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, for, for me as a fashion historian something out of a fairy tale I've read about it I've seen pictures of it but I've never seen it in person so that was a real treat Yes, it's, it's important to say that it's not only the tailleur bar is not only important in the history of Dior, but in the whole history of fashion, because it's really, uh, it's very rare and perhaps it's almost one of the first time when uh, a fashion designer, couturier, is uh, making a big change, a big statement, and everybody is following his a new vision. This is this is very rare in the history of fashion. Usually, when a beginner, you know, when a new uh, couturier is showing his first collection, almost nobody is there. Nobody is following. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was already anticipating his first collection, right before he debuted. No, I think he was surrounded by uh, some uh, journalists, some art collectors. 
many artists were around him. And yes, they, they, they loved Christian Dior. He was a very nice person. You know, he, he had many friends and, and his friends were around him uh, during the, the first show. But in fact, there was many uh, American buyers, for example, who were not attending the first collection. But then Carmen Snow, when she came back to the U.S., tell, told them, you have to come back and you have to buy the collection of Christian Dior because what he's doing is amazing. We need this. We need this huge change. We need the style of this new era after the Second World War. Absolutely. And I have to say, one of my favorite things about the exhibition are these rare photographs of Dior and his family. And you also have some of his earliest fashion illustrations before he was the great couturier. Uh, you even have his Legion of Honor medal on display. And I especially love that you have Dior's favorite childhood book. It's about seeds and gardening. And as you told me, Dior's mother was a consummate gardener and she really instilled in her son a love for gardening and flowers from a very early age. And Dior actually once said, quote, after women, flowers are the most lovely things God has given the world. And he actually found a way to combine his two loves. So I'm hoping you can tell us about Dior's flower women and the many ways in which flowers informed his work. Yes, in the new look uh, vision, uh, there is a lot about uh, floral. Uh, the line, you know, is inspired by the shape of a flower. Uh, and in fact, in the f this first collection, there are two uh, main uh, lines or shapes, if you may say so. Uh, one is about the, the shape of pe petals with a very large and long uh, skirt. And the other line is with a very narrow, uh, like a pencil uh, skirt, which is mimicking the pistil of the flower. Then really flower flowers are in the heart of the first collection. And then uh, he, he went back again and again on this idea of flowers. Uh, he uh, created um, um, all sorts of embroideries and prints and, and the floral inspiration was also mixed with his love for impressionism. And he, as, as Monet, you know, Monet uh, created his garden in Giverny, and this garden was his one of his main source of inspiration. And Dior did almost the same thing. He did uh, design uh, several gardens in, in his property near Paris, but also in the south of France. And it was there in his gardens designed by him that he uh, got his inspiration and that he was uh, doing his sketches for his uh, uh, collections. Wow. And his passion for gardening, nature, and flowers also revealed themselves in his first Miss Dior dress and perfume, uh, both of which were inspired by his sister, who is a fascinating woman in her own right, I must say. She's a member of the resistance during World War II. And in an effort to make money after the war, she cultivated roses. So uh, the exhibit features the exquisite Miss Dior dress from the spring-summer 49 collection, and its entire surface is a garden. It's covered in the most exquisite of hand-cut and sewn flowers. And the dress is also featured in your exhibition catalog, which I highly suggest everyone go out and get if you cannot actually make it to the exhibit in person. And it's accompanied by this essay that really brings to life this work of art. And it the essay reads, quote, this dress is an impressionist composition, a distant echo of Monet's garden. Above all it 
is a dream. The dream of an alchemist for whom perfumes were dresses and dresses emerged like genies from a bottle. So in your opinion, can fashion be art? Is Dior an artist? He was dealing with art when he was young as an art gallerist. And then he learned uh, fashion illustration. Then, yes, he, he, you can consider him as, a, as an artist. But, you know, art, uh, couture, haute couture is a form of art. Uh, I mean, you know, there, there are so many different significations of the, the, the word art. You know, and it has evolved through history. You know, in the medieval ages, it has a different meaning. And then in the 18th century, art was seen, um, it was an expression that was used for every uh, form of human uh, composition, every form of um, from the nature, how you can invent uh, different objects. Then it was seen as a very large meaning. And then there was the 19th century who has restrained the meaning of this uh, world. If you, if you look at this in the meaning of, with the meaning of the 19th century, fashion is not included in the hierarchy of, of the arts, but uh, I, I think it is a form of art, it's a form of expression, which is as, and perhaps it's a way, to, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to explain that it, it doesn't mimic painting or, or sculpture because it's something else you know it is dealing with fabric with embroidery with print uh, with all sort of things that belong to the fashion vocabulary it doesn't belong to the vocabulary of painting then people have to understand that it's 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 another world and in this world you can say that yes there are many many people who are working in these collections and they are acting in a very artistic manner because they invent all these objects, you know, all these elements of uh, decoration, the, the search for the shape, you know, the shoes, the, the costume jewelry, everything is invented from, from the scratch. Then yes, it's, it's a very, let's say, elaborated form of expression. Yes, right. And I mean, I feel the way I, um, when I'm standing in front of a piece by Dior or any of the other master haute couturiers, I, I get the same feeling that I do when I'm viewing a work of art by Monet or Manet. Um, so I, I, in many ways, I, I agree with you. I think that fashion is art. And my favorite room in the exhibit is actually the the room where the Miss Dior gowns are on display. And you did a really beautiful job of integrating them with paintings by Monet in the museum's collection. And you really see how all the designers um, after Dior have similarly found inspiration in nature and created their own Miss Dior dresses in tribute to the master. So it's really wonderful. And we're going to hear more on Dior after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. So the exhibition is entitled Dior from Paris to the World, um, Florence, because you really wanted to highlight Dior's international reach and appeal. So can you talk a little bit more about how Christian Dior was a pioneer in haute couture world expansion? Yes, he was a pioneer because he really started, uh, and it's crazy, he started the first year, you know, he opened his house. Um, first of all, he invented his first perfume, Miss Dior, which is a way to reach a lot of people, you know, <laughs> much more easier than with the haute couture um, expression. But then the next year, he was able to open another 
house in uh, based in New York, and then soon after there was another one in in London, and then there was another one in uh, Caracas, in Venezuela, and then and then he was starting to uh, sign all sorts of contracts uh, with all sorts of manufacturers, department stores all around the world. And this was really very new from uh, North of America to South America, from Canada to Europe, Africa, even uh, Australia and Japan. He uh, had this contract with the Daimaru uh, department store in Japan, and he was able to uh, create three dresses for Princess Michiko for her wedding. Yes, he, he was really uh, exploring the entire world and having this uh, system of licensing, which was very new in the fashion world. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially in the pre-World War II era, you really associate haute couturiers with really trying to protect um, and keep their designs, you know, kind of sacred and in France. Um, so this idea of him expanding and spreading Dior around the world was really fascinating, and I had no idea about it. And I especially love how you told me that the Japanese ateliers were making his designs in Japanese fabrics. I think that's wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and the dresses that he did for Princess Michiko were coating a lot of the textile traditions, like the shibori or the the the, the shape of the obi and, and things like this. Then, no, no, he was he was an ambassador. But it's very interesting what you say about yes, you know, in the tradition, haute couture were very uh, secret places in Paris, and and it's still there is this uh, way, you know, of dealing. Uh, it's it's still very almost impossible to enter in the workshop of uh, Christian Dior in Paris, you know, because there is this love of secrecy, uh, the secrets around creation. You know, you don't want to have your creations uh, stolen by by uh, you know other people. But if you want to expand your name and your fame in the world, of course, you 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 will be very very soon. Uh, uh, copied or you you will be the source of inspiration for many people and it's really it shows uh, when a, when a fashion brand is famous you know it's it's sometimes linked with this idea of being uh, copied or translated all around the world absolutely and at the height of his fame dior was the most famous couturier in all the world and um, it's incredible to think that only just 10 years after opening his couture house, he suddenly died of a heart attack in 1957 at the age of 52 years old. It was a tremendous loss. And in the 60 years hence, he has been succeeded by six different designers, um, all of whom have taken special care with remaining true to his legacy while also integrating their own unique perspectives. And this is really a necessity in keeping the house relevant and up to date as the years have progressed. And the first of these designers was Dior's 21-year-old assistant, who, well, he woke up one day to find himself the head of the most prestigious couture house in the world. So can you please tell us about the work of Yves Saint Laurent, who headed the house from 1957 to 1960? Yes, first of all, uh, for the owners of the of the house, it, it was you know a decision that was not easy to uh, give this most powerful house, which was 
already an empire in the world uh, to a baby, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but he he didn't deceive them because with his first collection, a very famous collection called the Trapeze Collection, uh, he did a, a statement because this collection with the shape of the dresses uh, like a triangle. Uh, were really envisioning the up-and-coming 60s and this idea of liberating the, bo the body from the constraint of, of the fabric. Yes, he, he was really uh, a pioneer of this style. But then, uh, soon after, he did this collection called the Beatnik Collection, inspired by the Beat Generation. And this collection was, you know, interested a lot of journalists you know there was many articles in magazines about this collection because this collection was suddenly the source of inspiration was so uh, new uh, it was inspired by uh, movies or or music and especially Marlon Brando you know acting in the wild one as a bad boy on, on his motorbike, you know, uh, dressed in a black leather jacket. And Yves Saint Laurent was inspired by this and was bringing black leather in the haute couture world, which was really seen by the client as really totally crazy and and, and not okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but he was he was young and he was really in the in the mindset of his generation and inspired what but by what was um, becoming, you know, the pop culture. And I think it's great. And it, it remains very, very, very famous in the fashion history, this uh, Beatnik collection. Right. And you have the bicycle jacket uh, on view in the exhibition, and it is incredibly wonderful, but perhaps a bit ahead of its time. <laughs> It was, I think, too too ahead of its time, and uh, the contract of uh, Yves Saint Laurent was not renewed, and he had to went away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was uh, followed by Marc Bohan, um, who, unlike his young predecessor, once said, "I don't like provocation for its own sake or aggressivity." Um, so. Bohan made his debut for the spring-summer uh, 1961 collection and designed for the house for the next 29 years. So how did he really shape the Dior brand over the 60s, 70s, and 80s? Uh, with his first collection, entitled The Slim Look, uh, he is, he's really showing uh, what he wants to do with Dior. He wants to express the, the spirit of the time, you know, the, the really, and, and to create a fashion which is in tune with the new lifestyle. And it's why he stayed so long at the head of the house, because he's really linked with the way the women are living, you know, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, he's expressing the evolution. In the 60s, you know, it's all about what is happening in the swinging London, and then the 70s, uh, you know, in, inspired by uh, a style uh, more uh, retro, and then in the 80s, it's the powerful woman with a very um, a large uh, padding in, in the shoulders and, and a short uh, skirts with high heels. He, he's really in tune with the, the moment, and he's really... Um, doing a style which uh, pleased the woman, which is wearable, uh, not too extravagant, and, and very beautifully executed, beautifully cut, and with beautiful ornaments. 
Yeah, and I have to say, dress listeners, that a lot of these, well, not a lot, but some of these collections by Bohan, Yves Saint Laurent, and Dior, are, videos of them are online. Um, so I suggest Googling it and checking it out because they really are incredibly beautiful. Um, so in the wake of the 1960s youthquake revolution, in which youth culture and mass-produced ready-to-wear clothing really began to set the pace and trends in fashion, Ocature well, it began to lose a lot of its relevance, especially when you consider it in relation to the increasing success of the high-end ready-to-wear market that we know so well today. Although I will say that Dior opened his first ready-to-wear boutique in 1967. So the designer Gianfranco Ferre's appointment to Dior in 1989 was really instrumental in once again bringing Dior and by extension haute couture into the foreground of fashion. However, at first his appointment was uh, my understanding, quite controversial. So can you tell us about that and also his design aesthetic? This was not your grandmother's Dior any longer. No, because um, he was, in fact, he was already famous. He had his own company uh, based uh, in Milan. And it was, for many journalists, it was shocking to, to see an Italian uh, couturier at the head of a French house and a legendary French house. But soon after, I think they loved what he did, and especially his first connection, which was really an homage to uh, Christian Dior. And he was able to bring back, you know, this very romantic vision of uh, uh, long evening gowns with uh, crinolines and lots of flowers and embroideries. Um, but he was doing more than this, you know. He was really one of the most famous postmodernist couturiers. Uh, it was the moment when, uh, you know, the haute couture, the roots of haute couture were uh, re-evaluated. And uh, there was this uh, love of looking at the people working in the shadow, you know, the embroiderers, the people dealing with feathers, with pleats, with all these things that are necessary for the haute couture to exist. And Jean-Franco Ferré was really working a lot with these uh, people and this know-how, which is really necessary for the uh, the haute couture to exist. Then with his extravagant uh, style, very Italian, very inspired by the history of Italian art, especially Baroque style, he was able to renew the fundament of haute couture. Wonderful. And as successful and extravagant as Gianfranco was, none of Dior's predecessors would cause quite the sensation as John Galliano, who took over for Gianfranco in 1997. So what did Galliano bring to Dior that no designer had done before him? Oh, my Dior. Oh, my Dior. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, love <laughs> it's uh, I, I think really... John Galliano, when he came, it was a sensation. Uh, he was already well known among the fashion uh, journalists. Uh, he was known as the British punk designer. And he, uh, again, there was many people who said, how can you give this wonderful, beautiful uh, Dior Couture house to this guy who is totally crazy. You know? <laughs> and But again, as the same thing with Gianfranco Ferre happened, uh, he was soon after beloved by 
the journalist and the buyers because he was creating these amazing collections with this amazing storytelling. Uh, each collection was based on an idea, on a story, uh, very often on extravagant uh, women that he was quoting, you know, uh, very uh, famous eccentric women. In the exhibition, we have the portrait of Marquesa Casati. She was one of the most famous eccentric uh, in the whole history of eccentricity. And in the exhibition, we have her portrait wearing uh, golden armor. She was appearing in, a, in an event dressed as Cesare Borgia, you know, a condottiere, a prince of the Italian Renaissance. And John Galliano, who was also uh, appearing as an eccentric person, you know, his uh, salute at the end of the, the show were very famous. He was always appearing with a crazy uh, costume. Um, he was really involved with uh, this vision of Marquesa Casati and did a, a collection uh, inspired by her. Then I think it's it's really the whole world of fairy tales, of many, many links with all sorts of, of artists uh, and very, very uh, important thing in the art history. Right. And and I have to say, when I was walking through the exhibit, that his room was probably the most polarizing among the people whose reactions I observed. Many people were re- really much in awe of his work and other people were just confused because how can how can a woman walk in that ensemble? That isn't practical. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. And, and you, in fact, you can see in the exhibition, and it's a question that visitors are, are asking very often, um, perhaps half of the exhibition is things that were um, just worn by models during the, the fashion shows. And the, the second half is really uh, shown with dresses that were really worn by, by real women. Then it shows the reality of the fashion world. There are uh, two types of women who are wearing <laughs> the, the fashion, the creation. First of all, the models during the fashion show. And during the fashion show, you understand how uh, fashion is a form of art because the, let's say half of the fashion show is creative to a point, you know, the designer is pushing the limits of creation exactly as an artist. Uh, there is almost no limit. The only limit is the, the shape of the body. But uh, you can see that they they can create in an extravagant manner. And, and yes, sometimes these dresses are never worn in the real life. But also half of the show very often is designed for real women. And, and even John Galliano was able to create uh, dresses that were worn in the real life. There are some in the room devoted to his creation. Yeah, absolutely. And I did want to tell people that this is fashion is art. Look over here, this could be worn. And you do have that beautiful room of all the women who wore Dior's dresses over the years, which was an incredible part of the exhibit as well. So John Galliano's reign was marred by several anti-Semitic remarks the designer made, and he was dismissed from the house in 2011. And he was replaced arguably by his exact opposite. And we will hear all about that designer after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. So the House of Dior went from having the king of theatrical opulence to the king of minimalism when they hired Raph Simmons to take the helm in the wake of Galliano's termination. And it was really under Raph, in my opinion, that Dior became instantly modern. He really 
brings the brand right into the 21st century with his incredibly unique vision and aesthetic. And yet, in many ways, he still managed to remain quite true to Dior. So, Florence, can you speak about uh, Raph's unique vision for the house and how he paid tribute to Dior? Yes. Uh, uh, Raph Simmons, by the way, doesn't like to be seen as a minimalist. <laughs> and uh, yet it's true, opposed to, to John Galliano. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think he, he appears like a minimalist. But in fact, it's, it's much more, um, you know, his creation is very sophisticated. It's a research about shapes. Um, he was formerly um, an in industrial designer, and he was for Dior. He was very inspired by Christian Dior, but also by mid-century architecture and mid-century uh, uh, ceramist artists. Then he he's, he was really in search of new shapes, of new cuts, very elaborated. Uh, there is in the exhibition uh, some of the dresses that he did in uh, 2014 about the 18th century. And from far away, you think it's looking like a, a court dress with side hoops. But in fact, when, when you are very near, you can see that it's a very elaborated uh, cut. But he's also dealing with the tradition of Christian Dior of having a lot of embroidery and he's doing this in a very new manner, very fresh vision on embroidery with new motifs and with the notion of uh, several layers. You know, you have a first layer of embroidery that opens to a layer under and it creates a lot of vibrancy and, and movement at the surface of, of, the, of the dress. Yeah, right. And I especially what you said about shape and how uh, he really paid tribute to Dior in a lot of his shapes. But unlike Dior, he um, achieved these shapes without that elaborate understructure, which I thought was really fascinating. Yes, this is a big uh, switch. And I think, yes, you can see the, the fact that the followers of Christian Dior, they really try to pay homage to him, but really dealing with the, the sensibility, the way women are acting in their dress. Uh, and Raf Simons, yes, he was aware of the fact that he, he was not able to use any more paddings inside uh, the, the hips, for example, or, or you know, to enhance the, the breast. It's not anymore fashionable to use padding. Then he's using, um, he's searching for a new type of uh, fabric and cut in order to shape uh, the body in, a, in an interesting manner. And there is a fabulous documentary, Dior and I, about uh, Raph's debut collection. If uh, listeners, you have not already seen it, I highly suggest watching it. So sadly, Raph left the company in 2016, um, but his replacement, Maria Grazia Chiori, still heads the house today. So can you tell us why is her appointment particularly significant? I think it's a way to express uh, a vision on today's uh, fashion. Uh, it's really what you can see uh, in the fashion world is very, very clear that there are a lot of female fashion designers that are involved in, our, in the, the, the creative process. And it's a way to, to react to the, the position of women uh, in society and the world today. And Maria Grazia Curie has done a lot uh, to and face the fact that, you know, in many countries of the world, 
women are powerful, but there are many other countries where it's still, you know, women are struggling for their uh, position. And and she she's really using the fact that um, the, the the fashion, the, the collection are shown in so many uh, social media and, and and magazines and televisions that you can really use this to give strong messages. And in the exhibition, we have the famous ensemble where the jacket is worn with a t-shirt with the, the this uh, sentence which which is the title of a book we should all be feminist and she's dealing with the feminism because the feminism appeared you know you, you know this in the 60s and was developed in the 70s and she she's showing that today you can have this uh, feminist uh, statement but also you can be very feminine you know, you don't ha- you don't have to to mimic uh, uh, men. You can be dressed with beautiful dresses, embroidered, um, strapless eventually for evening gowns. But you can wear these dresses without suffering in high heels. You can wear them with boots, with flat boots, or even sneakers. And this is her way to express uh, the the way. Women and and women and young uh, girls are dealing with fashion today. Right. So not only she's the first woman designer to head this prestigious couture house, she's an activist designer, and I really love that about her and her work and what she's bringing to Dior for the first time. And I have to say that this exhibit is really a beautiful testament to Christian Dior, and he really did an incredible job of visually showcasing for us just how his DNA has literally been woven into the work of all of the designers who have followed him, each in their own way of paid homage to the great Christian Dior. And this exhibition really does the same thing. So thank you so much um, for sharing that with us. And one final question before you go is that after having studied Dior for as many years as you have, do you have a favorite piece in the exhibit or one that you find particularly special? Oh, I have many favorites. <laughs> That's I know, it's a hard question. <laughs> I have trouble too. To oh, oh my God. It's so many beautiful things. And it's difficult to pick and choose just one. Um, I like very much... Uh, a dress called Fanny that be, that belongs to Mrs. Uh, Firestone, which is a blue dress in taffeta, which looks like almost like a, a cloud, uh, and that belongs to the Henry Ford uh, Museum. But I love also a dress called Nuit de Chicago uh, that belongs to the Metropolitan Museum, and it's it's a dress which is which belongs to the 50s and was designed by uh, Christian Dior, but it looks so modern with its uh, black and white uh, stripes. And um, I love the dress Maria Grazia Curie, which is inspired by a painting by a surrealist uh, artist, a female artist, uh, Remedios Varro, and it's beautiful. It's a very elaborated uh, kind of a patchwork of silk and feathers. And it's, it is worn with a mask created by Stephen Jones, the, the star millionaire who, by the way, came uh, to, to Denver and helped us to, to set the exhibition and all the headpieces and the hats in the exhibition. There are so many beautiful hats. No, it's difficult to, <laughs> to say just one. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was a real honor. 
thank you for your uh, very uh, interesting way of, of speaking about Dior. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being here with us today, Florence. And April, I cannot say enough wonderful things about this exhibition. Seeing the bar suit alone in person, well, it just felt like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And the exhibition is really full of so many more treasures. And if you have time to see it in Denver, you still do. The exhibit is on view until March 3rd. And if you can't make it, the same exhibition is going to open in Dallas on May 19th of 2019, where it will be up until September. And if you cannot make it in person, well, you can get your hands on a copy of the wonderful and giant coffee table book that accompanies the exhibit. It is incredibly beautiful. That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider your inner princess next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. We love hearing from you, so if you'd like to write to us, please do so at our new email address, dressed at iheartmedia.com. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E-public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pingram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at How Stuff Works who makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. 